You know, I always think when we send soldiers to the Middle East, places like Iraq or Afghanistan, when they put boots on the ground, they know that they are in hostile territory. They're on their guard in a way that they weren't back at home. They're aware that they have an enemy. It's a war. When the Michigan State football team went down to Ohio Stadium in Columbus yesterday, they knew that they were going down for a battle. They were in hostile territory, and it was going to be a war. Now, a football game is not life or death. It's win or lose. In Iraq, it's life or death. When I think of the Apostle Paul going into Asia Minor, and in particular, the capital city of Ephesus, I'm convinced he knew he was in hostile territory, and this was life or death. Ephesus was the fourth largest city of the ancient world, and a huge uh, city it was. uh, Think of New York or London. It's very metropolitan. It's a city where all the roads coming from the east come to this beautiful, busy port, and all the ships come bringing their wares. It's kind of the center of the ancient universe. It was the capital of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor. And so it was a strategic place to come and proclaim the gospel of Christ. And one of Paul's favorite places, by the way, he spent more time in Ephesus than any other place. Three years, two years, lecturing in a rented hall and the rest of the time sharing the gospel and seeing it spread all over Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. Ephesus was an amazing place, but it was a hostile place. When you look at the ancient uh, ruins of Ephesus, you're impressed about the culture of the city, its wealth, even its diversity. It was a place that has one of the, had one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Diana, or Artemis, as the Greeks called it. And so people came for commerce. They came for a great place to live. They came for the religion. They came for the business, just like a modern city today. But Paul found out that there was a lot of opposition when he tried to preach the gospel. You don't need to turn to Acts chapter 19, but that's the chapter that describes what happened when Paul put sandals down on the ground in hostile territory. He went to the synagogue, as he normally did, and preached the gospel, and some believed, but there was also strong opposition in the synagogue to the preaching of the apostle Paul. The Bible simply says in chapter 19 that they maligned the way. The way was an ancient designation for Christianity because Christ was the way, the truth, and the life. And so those who followed Christ were followers of the way. The Jews didn't embrace the way, not all of them, and some wanted to persecute the Apostle Paul. Not only that, but... uh, There were, according to verse 19 of chapter 19, many people who came to faith in Christ who burned their sorcery scrolls, which meant that the occult was strong in the city of Ephesus, that people were involved in the black arts and all that that entailed, that their worship was centered around 
demonic gods and other gods than the true God. When they came to Christ, they left all those other gods and followed Jesus. And then you have Demetrius, who was a silversmith, who used to make little statues of Diana, and he had a pretty good business going on, the Bible tells us. He made a lot of money. Just like today, when you go to any tourist place, they'll make little statues and icons. So they did in that day. But when Paul preached the gospel and people finally started believing, it hurt his business. And he got upset and got the, the uh, uh, gang together who made these statues. And the city was in an uproar and they caused a riot. The Bible tells us in Acts 19 that they met in the theater. And here's a picture of that ancient theater. You can still go there today and sit in those very seats where the people gathered. And they wanted to attack those who were proclaiming the faith. Paul was urged not to appear. He could have lost his life, so the disciples protected him. But some believers were taken into that theater and abused until one voice of reason quieted the crowd down after two hours and they dispersed. But I tell you, the city of Ephesus was a hostile place. The Jews, all of them didn't like the gospel. Those who worshiped Diana and those who made money off of her didn't like the gospel being preached. And the occult, they didn't like the gospel. Paul, when he preached the word of God, had enemies. So what do you say to people who are living in hostile territory? You might say, well, praise the Lord, I'm not living over there. We're living in safe America, where the gospel is embraced and the gospel is loved and where we have our freedoms. And then before you go too much further, I would say, stop, wait a minute. Things are changing in this world, in our own nation. And the hatred for the gospel is increasing. And the opposition to those who proclaim Christ and believe the Bible, that opposition is getting stronger. And we are in hostile territory. Need to be aware of it. So what do you tell people who are trying to follow Christ in an honest, sincere way, living with the enemy? Well, I think we say exactly what Paul would say and what Paul did say in Ephesians chapter 6. Let me encourage you to turn to the book of Ephesians and the final chapter, chapter 6. As Paul brings his wonderful letter to a close, there are some things he wants to remind these Christians about living in hostile times. So he says in verse 10, Ephesians 6 and verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. Just like a Roman soldier, you would see in the city of Ephesus has armor protecting their vital organs and weapons to fight. So as a Christian, you need to put on all of your armor, the full armor of God. And you do this so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. Dear Christian, do you know that you have an enemy? In fact, the Bible tells us not only is the devil our enemy, First Peter says he's like a roaring lion walking about seeking someone whom he may devour. So be on your guard. Be awake. You're a soldier in enemy territory. But you have also this world that the devil has convinced of a certain way to live and a certain way to believe. We have a worldly system. The world that we live in is anti-Christ. 
And then there is within us what we might call remaining corruption. Even though we're believers, we're not perfect. And there is still sin within. And we battle with our own flesh. So we say our enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have people who want to destroy us. Systems that are designed to weaken us. And so we need the full armor of God. He says in verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. You're not fighting with your neighbor or your coworker or that relative who doesn't appreciate the fact that you are seeking to follow Christ. Our enemy is not the president or some local official who enacts some law, some legislation that goes against our Christian beliefs. These people are not the enemy. We don't fight against flesh and blood. But we do fight against rulers. These are the authorities of the powers of darkness. They are spiritual evil forces in the heavenly realms. The Bible describes the devil as the prince of the power of the air. This portion of scripture tells us that his evil forces are well organized. And they've been spread out all over the world to try to keep people from coming to faith in Christ, to try to ruin the testimony of those who put their faith in Christ. The war is on. And so that's who we fight against. And how in the world are we to fight against these people? Well, verse 13 says it again. Put on the full armor of God so that when the evil day comes, you'll be able to stand. In fact, the Bible makes it very specific, very clear that the goal is that we would stand and not fall to our enemy. When we engage in the battle, that we will be found standing at the end of the fight. He says in verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that, purpose statement, you can stand against the devil's schemes, his strategies against you. If you don't put on the full armor of God, you won't be able to stand. The word stand is mentioned in verse 13. Stand your ground because you've got the armor on. And once everything is done and the final results are in, you'll be found standing, verse 13. Verse 14 says, stand firm then. Four different times, stand, stand, stand. What's the goal? Stand your ground. Don't lose it. After the war, still be standing. How can that happen? Put on the whole armor of God. And there are six pieces to the armor. We'll just mention them briefly. There is the belt of truth mentioned in verse 14. The breastplate of righteousness. Verse 15 talks about feet or shoes fitted with the gospel of peace. That is ready to carry the gospel of peace around the world. We are to take up the shield of faith. Verse 16. And verse 17 talks about the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. All defensive armament, by the way, except for the sword of the Spirit. And I like what William Grinnell has to say. He says, since our enemies are on every side, so should our armor be. Except there's one side not covered by the armor. The back, it appears, because there's no room for retreat. You go forward in the fight, and you stand in that evil day. We're Christian warriors. And so the Apostle Paul makes it clear that you'll never stand unless the armor's on, and you cannot put the armor on 
unless you pray. In fact, prayer is the energy that activates the armor. Look at verse 18. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. We sing that well-known Christian hymn, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus, right? You soldiers of the cross. It's taken from Ephesians 6. The third stanza says, Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor. Each piece put on with what? Prayer. So you can't stand unless you put the armor on, and you can't put the armor on without praying, which simply means this. It's impossible to stand without kneeling. It's impossible to win the war without praying. So you've got to understand that you're a warrior. You've got to understand that you're in a battle, and you've got to understand the way to, to, the way to win the war. And it's all about the armor in prayer. Now, we don't have time to deal with the armor this morning, but I do want to look at verse 18 because I find something really unique when it deals with prayer and mentions it over and over again. There was one Greek word that is mentioned four different times. It's the word all or a derivative, always. It's mentioned four times and it relates to prayer. So I want to talk this morning just briefly about the four universals of prayer from verse 18. And the first is this. We are to always be praying. That is, pray without ceasing. Verse 18, pray in the Spirit on all occasions. So it's talking about every situation in life, all seasons, good times and bad times. Pray. Day in and day out, pray. Morning and evening, pray. Pray all the time. And Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians, this is God's will in Christ for you. Not only to be joyful, but also to be prayerful in every situation. This is wonderfully comprehensive in the sense that no time is left out. Every situation in life is to be covered with prayer. Now the expectation is not that you're always on your knees or your head is bowed and your eyes are closed and your hands are firmly grasped in front of you. That's not the goal. But the goal is to be in constant connection with God. A book was written a while back that talked about 10-second prayers. And the point of the book was simply this. We need to learn to pray quick prayers all the time. Instead of running into a situation and say, well, I don't have time to pray, so I won't. Nehemiah, when he heard that the walls of Jerusalem had been torn down and he wanted to speak to the king, just had a few moments in between the two. And when he heard about the walls and was in the presence of the king, so the Bible says he quickly prayed to God and then spoke to the king. He talked to the sovereign, the true king, the ultimate king, before he talked to the human king. That was probably a 10-second prayer. Is that legitimate? Apparently so. Because he had such a connection with the Lord that he could just cry out, Lord, help me. Give me the words to say. And then he went before the king and spoke. 
you and I need to be constantly sending up quick prayers to God. Just don't wait till the end of the day to accumulate all the things that have taken place and spend the time to pray. Because often by the end of the day, you're way too tired, right? And, and you and I think that to pray, we have to pray long. And so by the time we get through a few sentences in our attempt to pray long, we're already asleep. The point is, pray on a regular basis all the time. Always be in the spirit of prayer. Always be ready to go to prayer. In Psalm 55, it was praying morning, noon, and night. The idea is all throughout the day. And then he also adds this caveat, when we're always praying, we should pray in the spirit. Pray in the spirit on all occasions. What does that mean? Well, I don't believe it means that we are to pray some type of spirit language that no one knows. The goal is, is to understand that the, prayer, the Spirit prays for us and also with us or helps us in our praying. I think one of the most astounding truths in the New Testament is to understand this, that Jesus is always praying for me. He ever lives to make intercession for me, and the Holy Spirit is praying for me as well. Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul said this. He said, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for you and I don't even know what we should pray about or how we should pray. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us, offers up prayers to God on our behalf with groanings that cannot even be uttered. So there's no words even going on, but the Spirit is praying. We don't hear him praying, but we know he's praying. And you and I sometimes think that we can pray even on our own strength. No, you can't. You need the Spirit's help and guidance. Kent Hughes, who used to pastor the college church in Wheaton, Illinois, said, to help me remember this, I wrote on the top of my prayer list, pray in the Spirit. So every time I went over my list, I was reminded, I need the Spirit's help. I need his guidance as I pray. Kent went on to say that praying in the Spirit not only means the Spirit prays for us and with us, it means he helps our prayers move to a higher level beyond our mere reason and intuition. The Spirit speaks to us through the Word of God. And it's the Word of God that conveys the will of God in everything. Further, the Spirit settles certain things in our hearts so that we pray with conviction and we pray with faith. So there's the Spirit praying for us the Spirit praying with us, the Spirit guiding and helping us in our prayers. It shows that we're totally dependent upon the Lord. We can't do this thing of prayer even by ourselves. So pray in the Spirit and pray at all times. By the way, that's a good suggestion. Do you have a prayer list? Do you have a list of people you're praying for? Right on the top of that list, pray in the Spirit, Ephesians. 618. It'll be a good reminder to you. The second all that comes to us from verse 18 is all prayers, that is, all various kinds of prayers. We are to pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all different kinds of prayers. 
Did you know that there are various kinds of prayer? Prayer is simply talking to God, but it takes different forms. Read the book of Psalms and note the different heart attitudes that David has when he prays. Sometimes he's confused. Sometimes he's filled with shame. Sometimes he's filled with joy. Whatever it might be, sometimes fear. His prayers are offered up to God from all of these different motives. I think one of the best ways to remember the various, some of the various kinds of prayers is to remember the word ACTS, A-C-T-S. And each letter stands for a different type of prayer. Many of you know this. The, the letter A stands for adoration. This is where we praise God for who he is and what he's done. The C stands for confession. And this is where we make known to him our sin and seek his forgiveness. T stands for thanksgiving, which is coming up. And some people think that this is the only time that you really need to pray with thanksgiving, the third week of November, but it really should be every part of our life. In fact, thanksgiving in prayer is you saying to God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you've done. No matter what's happening in my life, I thank you for the situation, and I thank you for what you're going to do. That's faith. And it sets you into God's agenda, not yours. The S in the word acts stands for supplication or request. This is where you bring your request to the Lord. Now, I find it interesting that before you get to the supplication and request, you need to go through adoration, confession, and thanksgiving. I don't think you have to be legalistic about it, but are your prayers balanced? Do they have all kinds of prayers? That's what Paul is saying in verse 18. Pray with all various kinds of prayers. Pray at all, the, all occasions in all the different forms of prayer. And when you do, God is honored as you are praying and beseeching him for grace and strength. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, you'll know that John Bunyan took from Ephesians 6.18, from the old King James, this phrase, all prayer, and almost invented a new word, all prayer. And when he wrote his wonderful allegory describing a Christian who was born in the city of destruction on his way to the celestial city, the city that lives forever. And he goes by way of the cross and then starts on a path, a narrow path to the celestial city. He talks about his experiences, many of the things that you and I face as Christians. It's a wonderful picture of the Christian life. I encourage you to read Pilgrim's Progress. But he tells us this as he's going on his way, that Christian perceived the mouth of hell hard by his wayside as he walked through the valley of the shadow of death. He saw flames and smoke and heard hideous noises. All of that forced him to put his sword aside and betake himself to another weapon called all prayer. What a memorable designation, all prayer. That means pray in all different kinds of ways all the time. And that's what you and I need to do. The third thing that I would mention from this verse is this idea that we are to always persevere, that is, never give up. Verse 18 says, keep this in mind, be alert, and always keep praying. Don't stop. 
Jesus is the one who admonished his disciples often to do this. In Luke 18, verse 1, he told them this parable, that you should always pray and never faint or quit. And he talked about a widow who went to an unjust judge, and the judge didn't want to give her the time of day, but she kept knocking until she finally got her answer. And then the Bible says God's, even, God's not like the judge. He's righteous. And yet he still wants you to keep praying because as we keep praying, we are being changed. You say, well, I thought, you know, if God wants to hear my prayers, and he does, if he's promised to answer my requests, and he has, then I should just pray and be done with it. No, he says keep praying. Keep on praying. Because in the perseverance of the prayer, you and I are are growing in grace. You and I are fitting ourselves into God's agenda instead of trying to get him into ours. Imagine if you prayed quickly and got an answer every time. It'd be like magic, wouldn't it? You'd forget God. But in prayer, you learn that you are nothing and he is everything, that his timetable is right and yours, even though the request might be right, your timetable may be off. The last prayer request in the New Testament is even so, come Lord Jesus. Has Jesus promised to come again? He has, right? And the last prayer, even so, come. We're told throughout the Bible, his coming is quickly, the New Testament. Behold, I come quickly. My reward is with me. James says he's even at the door. So pray. How long has it been since promise and fulfillment? About 2,000 years so far. That's a long prayer. And I know Jesus is coming back. He's going to fulfill his promise. And every day I need to pray, even so come, Lord Jesus. But until he comes, I must be faithful. And while I pray, my eyes continue to look up to heaven, not to this earth. I set my desires and affections on things above, not on things below. And that changes me. I like what Oswald Sanders said about persevering in prayer. This is interesting. He said, the very fact that God lays a burden on your heart to keep praying about a specific matter is evidence that he purposes to grant the answer. He uses the illustration of George Mueller. When asked if he really believed that the two men for whose salvation he had been praying for over 50 years would finally be converted, George Mueller said this, do you think God would have me keep praying all these years if he didn't intend to save them? <laughs> I love that faith. It's as though the burden that continues is the promise of the answer. Also, in that famous section of scripture in Matthew 7, where the Bible says, ask and you'll receive. You know it, don't you? Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be open. That's a very interesting section of scripture for two reasons. Um, first of all, the very grammar is a command and a present indicative, which means keep on praying. It's not ask once, but keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. So it has the idea of perseverance in it. Secondly, there is a growing intensity, intensity in each one of the verbs. Ask is a request. Seek is a, an asking with action. 
And knocking is an asking with action and perseverance. It's like now you've found the place, now you've found the door, just keep knocking until he opens, but you've gotta keep on knocking. And it's not because God is hard of hearing or he doesn't wanna answer your, your prayer. It's because the time isn't right, or I'm not right, or the request isn't quite right. And as I pray, and as I trust, and as I thank the Lord, God's kingdom work is going forward, and I shouldn't be discouraged. This is how God wants us to pray. Pray persevering. But we give up too soon. You know, sometimes we say things like this. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't feel like praying, so I'm not going to pray because I don't want to feel like a hypocrite. That's ludicrous. What if you did that in every area of your life? What if you... In the morning, the alarm would ring and you didn't feel like getting up. So you said, you know, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't feel like getting up, so I'm not going to go to work. So you come in the next day, your boss says, where were you the other day? I said, well, I don't want to be a hypocrite, boss. I didn't feel like working, so I didn't come in. He said, fine, I don't want to be a hypocrite either. You're fired. (laughs) How many things we do because we must do them, and in the doing of them, we gain the pleasure. And as you pray, you begin to want to pray even more. Our natural bent is not toward prayer. And that's why we have to be disciplined in it. But prayer is a delight and a great privilege even before it's a discipline. Keep on praying. Watch and pray, Jesus said. And that way you won't enter into temptation. Watch and pray so that you don't fall to temptation. Very same thing that Paul is saying. He's simply rewording, paraphrasing the words of Christ. The fourth and final one is that we are to pray for all saints. Be alert and always keep praying for all saints. You see, prayer is not just about you. This book of Ephesians that has as its central theme the unity of the church and the community of the church says that when you pray, pray in community. You need to be praying for someone, and you need to have someone praying for you. What do you pray about? Well, pray Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, near about three-quarters of the way through the the chapter. Paul talks about praying that we might grow in grace and our understanding of, of God and his love and his purpose. Pray the prayer of Ephesians chapter 3, same thing, that I might understand and comprehend the love of God in all its dimensions. That's a good prayer request. Pray about the spiritual battle. Pray to put on the armor of God. And pray for evangelism. Look at verse 19. Paul said, pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. He was an ambassador in chains. He was in prison. And he said, I still want to be witnessing and pray. I still want to be sharing the gospel. And he had two requests. I want to, I want to share it clearly, and I want to share it courageously. I like what John Stott says. Clarity and courage remain as the two most crucial characteristics of authentic Christian preaching. For they relate to the content of the message preached and the style of its presentation. So if you want to know how to pray for your pastors, pray that we will preach the clear biblical message of God's truth and pray that we will preach it courageously because these are evil days. 
These are days when there is opposition. We're in hostile territory, and people are going to fight back. And so Paul basically says this, if you want to stand, make sure you kneel first. And that's how you win. In 1944, there was a small contingent of Japanese soldiers that was sent to western Philippines to a small island of Lubang. They were given the mission to spy out the U.S. forces and to be involved in guerrilla warfare wherever they could be. The Allied forces won the war and liberated the islands, but there were some holdout Japanese soldiers. There were some who did not believe that the war was over and would not, could not conceive that their empire would surrender, so they kept fighting. One man who is doing this is Hiru Onoda. He was a lieutenant on that small island, would not believe that his country had surrendered, and he evaded capture lived in the jungles, hunkered down, gaining food from the area and stealing from local farmers. He was a Japanese holdout, get this, until 1974. (laughs) He still thought the war was going on. He was still fighting the war. Here's a picture of him in his tattered uniform when he finally surrendered. In fact, they had to find his former commanding officer, send him to the island of Lubang to convince him that the war was over and to relieve him of his duties. He said, I'm a Japanese soldier. Most soldiers are prepared to die, but I am an intelligence officer, and I was told not to die, but continue the guerrilla warfare. Those were my orders, and as a soldier, I'm going to obey my orders until they're rescinded. They had to bring the commanding officer years later, three decades later, to come and find him and say, hey, you're relieved of your duty. So he presented his sword that he'd kept all of those years and surrendered in 1974. He died at the age of 91, I think it was uh, just last year, when he finally passed away. And you hear that story and you say, how tragic. I mean, isn't it really tragic? He was out of touch with reality and he wasted the best years of his life thinking that the war was going on when it wasn't. And yet it may be even more tragic to think of a Christian who is out of touch with reality, wasting the best years of his or her life, thinking that there is no war going on when there is. And the only way to win the war, the only way to stand, is to kneel. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning as we think of your word to take something practical from Ephesians 6, whether it's starting to build a a prayer list, whether it's writing on that prayer list Pray in the Spirit. Maybe, Lord, it's asking others to pray for us. If the Apostle Paul asked others to pray for him, we should have certain people praying for us. Lord, maybe it's simply the practical aspect of writing on a sheet of paper that we keep in our Bibles, the word A-C-T-S, and learn how to adore you and praise you, confessing our sins, thanking you, and then making our request before you. Lord, help us to take a serious step forward in improving our prayer life. For Jesus' sake, amen.